with us last week, you'll know that we essentially left off mid-conversation with Yahweh speaking to Moses there at Mount Sinai uh, from the burning bush. And after God proclaimed His character to Moses, and of course to us, uh, God is now going to continue on in that conversation with Moses, a conversation that very much relates to Moses' call to be the mediator of Israel, the redeemer that brings them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. So we're going to take the conversation all the way to its end. So that takes us from chapter 3, verse 16, all the way to chapter 4, verse 17. So let me read that passage for us and then pray for God to bless our study of His Word and we'll begin. So let us hear now as our covenant Lord speaks to us through His perfect Word. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt, and I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and your daughters, so shall you plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. And the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? And Moses said, A staff. And Yahweh said, Throw it to the ground. So he threw it to the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not even listen to those two signs or to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the ground, and the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O oh, my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken with your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. And the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. But he said, O oh my Lord, please send someone else. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother? The Levite, I know he can speak well, and behold, he's coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart, and you shall speak to him and put words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and teach 
you both what to do, and he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be to your mouth, and you shall be to him as God. And take in your hands this staff with which you shall do the signs. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Our Father, we do ask that you would help us this morning. Uh, by your grace and mercy, that you would fill us with the Spirit, that we might behold wondrous things from this Word. We ask that you would comfort us where we need your comfort, that you would also convict us where we need your conviction. You know how we are all in our own ways, dying people, never promised another sermon, never promised even another day. Help us then to hear with earnestness and meekness. You know, of course, that I am a dying man, and let me preach accordingly, as you say I must, with clarity and with courage. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The great French reformer John Calvin was on the run from the French government in 1536. He had been driven out of his homeland due to persecution for his Reformation beliefs, for his Reformation doctrine. And he was on the way to a city named Strasbourg. He wanted to get there in order that he could continue writing, continue studying. Uh, By this point in his life, he'd already published an early edition of what would become known as his magnum opus, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he had this kind of burgeoning reputation and renown in the land. But in God's providence, the, the ordinary way to Strasbourg was blocked by this battle. And so he had to take a detour around, and he spent the night in Geneva in Switzerland. And he meant to stay there one night and then continue on his way to Strasbourg. But there in Geneva was another reformer, a man named William Farrell, who was this towering giant, this red-headed man who loved to thunder forth these great truths of the gospel. And he quickly was told that, hey, John Calvin is in town. And so Pharrell went and found where Calvin was, and Calvin was there seated before him, and Pharrell thundered forth. He said, you must stay with us in Geneva and help us with the Reformation. And John Calvin said, well, you don't understand. You know, this is my paraphrase, mind you. Uh, I'm not really cut out to be a pastor. You know, I, I love to study. I love silence. I need the ivory tower of Strasbourg. And in a way that only Pharrell could do, he, he placed his hand on Calvin's head, and he said, may God curse you. And your studies, if you do not agree to the calling to which he's called you. And it was pretty normal back then that if you heard such a thing from a man of God, you would believe that it was nothing less than God's word to you. So Calvin sat back rather stunned, certainly shocked, even terrified to a certain degree. And he said, very well, I will stay in Geneva and do as the Lord pleases. And church history bulges with these types of stories, doesn't it? God calling reluctant ministers into his ministry, hesitant servants into his service. That's exactly what we see in full array in our text today in Exodus 3 and 4. As God is calling Moses once again in this conversation to be the redeemer of Israel. uh, To be the one that leads them out of affliction and bondage. And whereas when God first spoke to Moses from the burning bush, Moses said, here I am. And God says, I'm going to send you into Egypt. Moses, by the end of our text, he doesn't, like Isaiah would say in his prophetic call, he doesn't say, here I am, send me. Moses really comes along and says, here I am, send him. Send somebody else, just not me. And of course, some of you might be in here today, perhaps all of you at one level or another, 
and you feel a degree of hesitancy. You're somewhat reluctant in a certain place in your life where God has called you to serve for Christ, to serve for the kingdom. Maybe it's fear, maybe it's doubt, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's worry, maybe like Moses that you don't feel equipped, you don't feel that you're the right person for that calling. Well, I hope along the way this morning you'll find encouragement, you'll find comfort from God's word to Moses as God means to comfort Moses in the midst of his calling. And it's a text that really centers, you may have noticed it, on, the, on these signs that God gives to Moses. And so what you want to think about this morning along the way in our study is we're pursuing this simple theme of God's signs of salvation. That's what we want to look at, God's signs of salvation. And we'll look at it in two parts. The back end of chapter 3, we'll look at God's commission. And then the 17 verses before us in chapter 4 as Moses' objection. So God's commission and Moses' objection. Now remember where we left off last week. God has been speaking from this flame of fire in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord arrived. This another Yahweh himself. And he says, Moses, you're going to redeem my people from Israel. And as you might not be too terribly surprised, Moses responds, well, who am I to play the role of mediator for your people? And God says, well, I'm going to be with you. And then Moses says, well, okay, I might show up in Israel in time, and they're going to ask me, who sent you? Who's the name of the God that has sent you to redeem us from bondage and slavery? And it was there last week, we kind of reached this summit of Scripture where God gives His personal name to His people. And, of course, to us where He says, Okay, this is the name that you share with Israel. Remember what it was, children? I am who I am. Say, I am has sent me. And so we saw this great truth about God's character along the way. We saw that He, of course, is inexhaustible. He's incomparable. He's covenantal. He's merciful. He's personal. He's unchangeable. He's eternal. And those truths about God's character now flow into God's commission given to Moses. Look again at verse 16. He commands Moses, go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. Now, students, you may find it interesting that the Hebrew word for elder, it just simply means bearded one. Elders were the men with the beards in Israel. And of course, it's because in Hebrew culture at the time, you know, a beard was meant to communicate something of maturity, something of age hopefully something of wisdom, something of insight. But the nation of Israel isn't it. It's so large at this point in Egypt that it's just not possible for Moses to relay the report to the entirety of the people, like with one message. So he needs to tell the elders, here's what God has appeared to me to say to you, and then you go share that with all the tribes of Israel. So kids, what's this report that Moses means to relay or is supposed to relay to the elders. We'll look at verse 16 at the end. God begins by saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. I mean, you never want to race past certain statements and sentences like that. But there's truth that our God is all-knowing, that His eye sees everything, that in the midst of His people's now centuries-long struggle of suffering, Tempted, surely, no doubt, by the accuser to doubt God's goodness, to doubt God's provision. What he says is, no, I've heard your cry. No, I've seen your suffering. I have remembered my covenant. I know the depth of your sorrow. Some of you might need to recognize that is still true of you today. You might feel as though God has forgotten you. 
And God says, I know, I see, and notice verse 17, I promise. You can't make it very far, can you, into the Old Testament before you run into God's promises. That's just who Yahweh is. We talked about that last week. He's the God of the covenant. He's the God who makes promises. He's the God who keeps promises. And if you're in here today and you wouldn't say that you're trusting in the Lord, I wonder if you have anyone in your life on whom you can rely to keep their word perfectly. At all times, in every situation or circumstances, they are true to their promise The Bible tells us that there's only one being in the entire universe that's always and only true to His promise. And it's this God who is speaking now. For what does He promise? Notice that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites. And what's interesting about verse 16 into verse 17, it uses this language of I have observed you and I promise. It's language that you can actually translate as I have visited you. Even in the past tense, I have visited you. And why that's important is because all the way back, centuries before, Genesis chapter 50, those of you that have been walking with us through Genesis earlier this year might remember, Joseph is on his deathbed. And it's almost his final dying words in the Bible. What does he say to his brothers? The Lord will surely visit you. 400 years later, it's happening. God is visiting his people in fulfillment of his promise. And so he begins to rattle off all the promises that follow in verse 18 through 22. Now, if you can think back with me to that ancient time when people used to go to movie theaters, I wonder if you were the kind of person that certainly now that you can reserve a seat, it seems like you could just slide in right as the main event is about ready to begin if you prefer to do that or if you're more like me and you want to get there early enough to see Uh, The previews, because, you know, previews, they generate this kind of excitement, this expectancy, this eagerness for uh, what's going to come. And what you need to see in the rest of chapter 3 is very much like Yahweh's preview of the Exodus. This is his trailer for what's getting ready to happen in the rest of the book. Because, kids, if you just look down at verses 18 and following, you'll see this phrase show up over and over that God says, I will, I will, I will. And depending on how you count those promises and kind of mark them off, it could be as many as 11 different promises God makes in a short number of verses. And it's simple enough, isn't it? Look at verse 17. He says, of course, he's going to bring them into the promised land. Verse 18, the elders are going to listen to you, and you're going to make a request to Pharaoh to go worship me in the wilderness for three days. And that's very important that you might know what's getting ready to come in the next few chapters. Because Exodus is set up in such a way, especially when you get to the plagues, as though a battle of the gods is taking place. It's a war of worship. Request, say to Pharaoh, let us go for three days into the wilderness to worship Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. Well, you might know that at this time, Egyptian citizens believed Pharaoh was a walking god named Horus. And when he died who would become the god Osiris. And you were to worship him. Yet here comes the Egyptians, or I'm sorry, the Israelites, saying to the king of Egypt, we want to go to the wilderness where you have no jurisdiction and worship Yahweh because he's the only true God. He's the only one that deserves worship. And so in the ongoing narratives, what you see is a battle between the little gods of the earth and the only God who has created the earth. And you'll see in verse 18, this isn't going to come easily, is it? 
Oh, verse 19, I'm sorry. The king won't let you go unless compelled by mighty hands. So verse 20, Yahweh says, I'm going to stretch out my mighty hand and work all of these signs, and he will eventually let you go. And then interestingly, you'll notice verse 21 through 22, God says, I'm going to send you out. They're going to let you go by opening their pocketbooks. Just ask your neighbors to give you gold, to give you silver, to give you clothing, and I'll give you great divine favor from the Egyptians as they'll provide for your every material need as you leave them. So shall you plunder the Egyptians." And if you see that preview rightly, what you realize is you could summarize that trailer, if you will, as little more than divine deliverance is on the way, but it will come through difficulty. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be opposition. There's going to be a battle in place. And maybe it's because of this difficulty that we now see God's commission lead to Moses' objection, because he has three different objections he's going to make in chapter 4. The first is over a lack of what he perceives, at least, a lack of credibility. Notice verse 1 of chapter 4, but behold, Moses answered, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. It's striking, isn't it? If you just glance up to verse 18 of chapter 3, what has God just promised Moses? They will listen to you. Seconds later, Moses says, Lord, they won't listen to me. And it could just be this kind of brazen and brash unbelief of God's promise just uttered. Or honestly, it could just be much more understandable given Moses is going to soon find out a number of times the Israelites aren't going to listen to him. I mean, think about it. Yahweh, I'm getting ready to show up. He is essentially saying to the Lord, the sojourning shepherd who's wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And I'm going to come to the Israelites and say, I had this burning bush encounter and Yahweh said, guess what? I am here to deliver you. I mean, who's really going to believe that? Certainly, there's an entire generation that has been raised in Egypt, a dire generation of Hebrews that know nothing about Moses. They've never seen Moses. And so God says, well, guess what? I'm going to give you some signs, signs of salvation to convince the Israelites, that I've sent you. Because notice verse 5, this is the purpose of the three signs that are getting ready to come, that they may believe that I, Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, has appeared to you. So sign number one shows us God is sovereign over creatures and kings. God is sovereign over creatures and kings. Because kids, if you know the story, God says, hey, what's in your hand? Moses says, a staff. God says, throw it on the ground. And immediately it turns into a serpent. And you notice the end of verse 3, Moses ran from it. Because surely you would probably run away from such a sight too. And even more stunning and terrifying, Moses would have heard Yahweh then speak, pick it up by the tail. And you might know you don't pick up snakes by their tail. At least not this kind of a snake. But such as Yahweh's sovereignty over snakes, he picks it up by the tail and immediately comes right back into his staff. But there's a deeper underlying truth going on here related to Yahweh's sovereignty If you were to see Pharaoh in his crown palace at the time and actually observe his crown, you would see something jutting forth from his crown. Do you know what it was? A snake. A cobra. That was meant to underscore his power, meant to underscore his cunning. And here's a not-so-subtle way that Yahweh is preaching the gospel. I rule over all things. All snakes, even snakes named Pharaoh, belong to me. And of course, the ultimate encouragement to God's people originally hearing this truth was even the snake named Satan. He can't conquer me. Sovereign over creatures and kings. Secondly, sovereign over people and sickness. Notice verse 6. 
He says, put your hand inside your cloak. Moses put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And students, you might know that leprosy was the the most feared disease in that ancient eastern world. And uniquely so, the Egyptians of the time, they were terrified of any kind of sickness. And here's God with a mere word saying, you know, put your hand inside your cloak. You know, pull it out. And suddenly it's full of leprosy. Well, then he says, of course, put it back in. And Moses pulls it right back out. And suddenly it's healed. That Yahweh alone has that ultimate sovereign power to cleanse people of even the most fearsome, gruesome sickness that could ever afflict them. And so what he goes on to say, doesn't he, is, well, if they don't listen to this first sign of the staff and the snake, show them the second sign of the leprosy inside the cloak. And if they don't listen to that either, notice what he says now in verse 9. You shall take some water from the Nile and pour it out on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. So he's sovereign not just over creatures and kings, people and sickness, but here it's over nature. Surely you know that the Nile River was then and now incredibly important to Egypt. It was not just their place of sustenance. It was very much a border protection against military invasion. But more pointed to this text is the Egyptians understood the Nile River to be a divine source of life. And here's Yahweh saying, I will turn it into a source of death with a word. Such is my power over nature. And so with these signs in hand, wouldn't you think? Moses say, it's time to get going. I see exactly the degree to which Yahweh is powerful over all things. But his lack of credibility now leads to his objection about his lack of competency. Look at verse 10. Moses said to Yahweh, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. You know, we don't know exactly what he means by slow of speech, slow of tongue. There's all kinds of options of what Moses could mean by that. It could be little more than something of an ancient Eastern display of humility. If you were called to this great divine task, you're expected kind of in this manner of humility to say, I mean, who am I to fulfill this role? I can't even speak that well. I can't even talk that well. Maybe Moses is saying something like that. Maybe it's 40 years in the wilderness has stripped him of all his courtly countenance and confidence. Or it's even possible, isn't it? Because it's striking. Look again at verse 10. Moses is saying, Lord, you've even heard this while you're talking with me from the burning bush. Since you have spoken to your servant, you know I'm slow of speech. Which is why many scholars throughout the ages have understood Moses to be a stutterer or someone that had a lisp of sorts that caused him to be full of, or I'm sorry, lacking confidence in public speaking. Whatever it is, he says, I don't have the competency required for the task. And you could do an interesting study of mighty preachers throughout the ages. And you might discover an unexpected thread, um, a thread throughout all of their stories of how many grew up terrified of public speaking. For example, one of the greatest preachers in America, certainly one of the most influential preachers in America of the last 30 years is a man named John Piper. And you might have heard his name before. And if you have, you may not have heard that he essentially had clinical anxiety over public speaking from grade school through the middle of his college years. 
And certainly that seems out of place with the mighty eloquence that he now wields in favor and in service of the Lord. Well, one day at Wheaton College during the summer, the college chaplain came up to him and said, I want you to pray tomorrow in the service. Pray with the 500 students that are there in public. And Piper responded, well, how long do I have to pray? And he said, 30 seconds. And Piper, as he recalls this event, even often these days, still doesn't know why he said yes, but he said yes. And then he proceeded the rest of the day due to his anxiety, walking around the campus asking the Lord for help because he was so nervous about praying for 30 seconds in, in front of his fellow students. And he said, I got to a point where I said to the Lord, if you will get me through 30 seconds without bombing, without my voice choking up or trembling so bad that everyone is totally embarrassed for me, I will never again say out of fear no to a speaking engagement. And God answered that prayer. And of course now God is going to answer Moses' concern of the same. For look at how God responds in verse 11 to his objection about his supposed lack of competency. Yahweh said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? You know, Jesus uses language like this, doesn't he, often in the Gospels? For example, Matthew chapter 11, someone comes to him and says, hey, we want to know whether or not you're the Messiah. He says, just take back this report. You know, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak. Yahweh is saying here is, I made that mouth. I can therefore make that mouth do whatever I want that mouth to do. And to say whatever I want that mouth to say. I can teach it, I can train it, I can wield it, I can equip it. And I hope many of you might be even encouraged in this, because I suppose perhaps maybe God's placed a unique calling upon your life where you're meant to preach the gospel, you're meant to speak the good news to a family member. Perhaps it's even a child, a grandchild, a neighbor, a co-worker. And maybe for one reason or another, you too feel, I just don't have the competency to do that right. Well, the Lord Jesus has said himself, hasn't he, that he sent his spirit that we might have words to say that our tongue might be loose, that our mouths might be opened like Moses to be able to declare the good news. But for Moses, even this encouragement isn't enough, is it? He's got this objection related to his credibility, his competency. Now gets now in verse 13 to just rank lack of commitment. Look at what he says. Oh, my Lord, please send someone else. You know, was he saying that with a terrified tone, a trembling tone, a weeping tone? We don't exactly know, but we know he doesn't want the job. Anybody else but me, Lord. And Moses is going to soon find out in the course of Exodus, if you fast forward the story to Exodus 34, uh, God's going to speak to them again truth about his character, and he's going to say to Moses, I am slow to anger. But students, you need to recognize that slow to anger doesn't mean never angry. For Moses figures that out. Look at verse 14. Then the anger of Yahweh was kindled against Moses. You could translate it as the anger of the Lord was burning against Moses. And you, you need to understand that you must have a doctrine formed by Scripture, a doctrine of God that understands he can be displeased with his chosen people their lack of faith, their refusal to obey. 
But God still, doesn't he, abound in this long-suffering and grace and, and mercy. Because if you just scan your eyes through verse 14 through 17, he accommodates, doesn't he, also to this objection of Moses. He simply says, okay, your brother Aaron's on the way. He's a Levite. He can speak well. Why doesn't he just be the mouthpiece for you? Just as you're my mouthpiece, Aaron will be your mouthpiece. You tell him what to say, and he'll say it for you. Notice verse 17 at the end. Moses, simply take in your hand this staff with which you shall do the signs. God's signs of salvation. I was 15 years old when I moved away from the house. I moved to Bradenton, Florida. Spring semester of my sophomore year. I was playing with this national soccer team. Me and 17 other guys from the country moved to this particular area for training for a couple of years. And I remember the day that I departed, my parents uh, took me to the airport. And along the way, you know, we had lunch. And it was a lunch that was meant to be like celebratory. You know, Jordan, you've worked really hard for this. And finally, it's kind of come to fruition. But it had this incredibly somber tone to it. Because we knew that, in all likelihood, this is, I've left the home for good. I'm, you know, never coming back and, and living nearby. And uh, near, near the end of the lunch, my dad pulled out this paper. And if you know my dad, you'd be like, what's on the paper? And he put it before him, and he began to read this list of encouragements, words of wisdom he wanted me to know as I left home. And it was an incredible comfort to me in the sense of, hey, God has called me, we really thought, and still do believe, to be a missionary to a culture in the soccer world that needs Jesus Christ. But it was unusual to leave home at the age of 15 and assume you're really never coming back. And Moses, likewise, is now ready to leave the wilderness of Midian. He's going to go to Egypt. And you see, don't you, that God gives him comforts and his calling. Because that's what I want to encourage you in as we begin to close. It's as though God, through the sacred pages of Scripture, he slides across that paper and says, here are the encouragements for you as you go. Here are the comforts for you as you go. Here here are the words of wisdom for you as you go. And perhaps you might find yourself in a similar place, as we said earlier, where you are hesitant like Moses to obey God's call, whatever it may be, as a husband, as a wife, as a son or a daughter, as a servant, as a worker. And so what three encouragements could we learn from our text today? Let me give you three, and then we'll be done. First of all is the comfort of God's promise. If you flip back to chapter 3, verse 11, you know, Moses' first real objection actually was at that point. He said, you know, who am I that you would send me? And God simply responds with the promise, doesn't he? Notice verse 12, but I will be with you. You can also translate that as I am with you. Fast forward to chapter 4, verse 12. Moses is worried about his mouth and its inability. What does God say in chapter 4, verse 12? But now therefore go and I will what? Be with your mouth. And you shall teach what I give you. Sometimes in the midst of fear, in the midst of hesitation, in the midst of caution, what you need more than anything else is that perpetual reminder of that perpetual promise. That God is with you. That He will help you, whatever you need help. Maybe it's speaking, maybe it's thinking, maybe it's acting, maybe it's deciding. You have the comfort of God's promise. Number two, you have the comfort of God's patience. God's patience. I hope you are encouraged here how God loves to use imperfect people to bring about His perfect promise. 
Moses doesn't want the job. He's trying to get out of it. God's anger burns even against Moses, and yet what does he still do? I'm going to make it to where you are my mediator and redeemer. How long has God been patient with you? Perhaps for years you've said, no, I won't do that. Perhaps even for decades, no, I won't follow that. And yet he keeps calling, he keeps wooing, he keeps speaking. You got the comfort of his promise, you got the comfort of his patience, and finally you got the comfort of his provision. Whatever you need, Moses, I'm going to give it to you. You need these signs? Take the signs. You need a brother to speak for you? Take your brother. You need the promise? Take it with you. He provides for everything that Moses needs in order that he might be faithful to his calling. And it isn't a joy when you think of the Lord Jesus Christ, who also was called to be a mediator, a redeemer, that he didn't need to be convinced to go about that work. It's not as though the Lord Jesus came with these objections. I can't do it. I don't want to do it. It's not as though he said, send someone else, knowing that there actually is no one else that God could send. He went willingly, didn't he? He went sacrificially, hopefully, eagerly even to the place where he would absorb God's wrath due to sinners like you and me. He's not the reluctant mediator. He's the eager mediator. But not just that. There was a time where Jesus was one day talking with the Jews, and they always wanted signs. And they said, teacher, give us a sign. And he said, okay, I'm going to give you one sign, but the only sign that you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and nights. So will the Son of Man lie in the earth for three days and nights. This is your sign. And of course, it's a sign that speaks of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. Because whereas Moses receives signs of salvation, I hope you see how Jesus is the sign of salvation. He is God's promise. He is God's patience. He is God's provision. He's God's comfort to your calling. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would indeed help us. For we know that you have called us in Jesus Christ. Father, we know that you've equipped us with the Spirit. That we do not lack anything that we require to obey and be faithful. And yet, Father, we recognize in places where we've been reluctant, where we've fallen short. And we pray that you would indeed comfort us in Jesus Christ. Uh, for we know that he paid the penalty that was due all of our disobedience and unbelief. The penalty that even belonged to our hesitation and our reluctance. Our fear, doubts, and anxiety. So lift our gaze to him. That we might look upon him and live. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen.